Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tequila Williams. Tequila is a regional account executive at Legacy Heart Care and Trinity Heart Care and has an impressive sales career. Tequila is a former professional cheerleader with the Carolina Panthers and attended the University of Georgia, Go Bulldogs. Most importantly, Tequila is the mother of Emma Grace who attends Davidson Day. Tequila, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So the first question I have is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in a small little town called Rome, Georgia, which is in northwest Georgia. And I had such an incredible childhood. I'm the oldest of three children, and my entire family actually lives on the same road. So we grew up out in the country. We didn't have cable, so none of the amazing technology that we have today. I think we had seven channels when I was growing up, so we actually lived outside, and it was just an incredible childhood. I guess, you know, in terms of spending time with family, being able to go next door and at my grandmother's house, and then my uncle's down the road, and actually my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother lived across the street from me the majority of my life growing up as a kid and as a teenager. And so it was just blessing. It was just surrounded with family and uh, people who love you. What was that like in terms of, I imagine you couldn't get away with very much. Like you no. could <laughs> I never snuck in anybody into my house and I never snuck out of my house. <laughs> it's just so funny to think like you just, you have people watching you all the time. So, and then I guess, how did you decide to attend the University of Georgia and what did you study while you were there? Yeah. So, Funny enough, my mother, my parents had me very young. I was born two days before my mother turned 18, and my dad was 18 years old. And my mother always said from the time that we were small children, all of my children are going to go to college. That was something she instilled in us. And at an early age, I knew that I would leave Rome, Georgia. And to be totally honest, I had a boyfriend at the time and I didn't want to leave, but I knew that I was supposed to leave. So I had applied to one school shorter college in Rome and I had applied to University of Georgia and I was accepted into Georgia and it changed my life. It's a phenomenal school. It wasn't too far away from home. And I knew that I could go there and I could grow and be what I was called to be in that space. And I actually studied biology there and... Originally, I was pre-med, and halfway through, I said in my head, this is not what I'm supposed to do. But I stuck with it because I figured I could always fall back on that biology degree, whether it was healthcare or sales like I'm in now. So I stuck with it and actually worked full-time while I was getting my degree. And what did you work as? I was actually an assistant manager at Express. It was Express and Structure back then. So I worked there full-time, 42 hours a week, and I went to school full-time as a biology major. It's interesting what you said about your mother being so young. Uh, My mother was also young when she had me. And 
Did you notice that she was young growing up? Like, was that something that you were even conscious of? I was not conscious of it at all. And it's very interesting, uh, just the insight and the mindset that you have as a child, because you still see your parents as these giants. Yeah. You still see them as the person that you're going to go to, you know, when you're hurt, when you're sad, when you want to hug, all of those things. And so I never saw them as, oh, they're like really young. And my perspective, of course, as I got older was like, wow. And especially now I have my own daughter. And it's like, how in the world did they do it? That's what I always think. And I'm so, so grateful for them. I truly am. It's so interesting you say that because my mother, so she, I was speaking to her last night and I was saying, when were you born? And so she told me, I won't give that away because she listens, but, and then I was just doing the math because it's something I was, hadn't really done before thinking like how young she was when I moved overseas. So I moved away from Australia when I was 18, took a year off, Mm -hmm. took a gap year. And so she was uh, about 23 when she had me. And so she was like in her early, early 40s when I moved away for a year and Mm -hmm. then basically came back for a little bit and then moved away, went to college and had never lived at home again. But what was really interesting is, so I was moving away from home when she was in her early 40s and I had a kid at 40 right? And so it was just amazing what a difference in a generation that is. So she is like really, really young still. And like your mother is too. And so they're just very present in, she's very present in my kid's life, whether she travels normally before COVID, just coming here all the time. But it's just interesting, whereas I didn't realize that either, just how young my parents were, because they, as you said, they're giants and you go to them for everything. And so I saw that you were once a professional cheerleader for the Carolina Panthers. Did you participate in cheer through high school and college? So I uh, cheered in high school. And funny enough, I tried out when I was a freshman. And freshmen never were allowed to be on varsity. You had to be on JV and then you move up to varsity. So I actually made the varsity squad as a freshman. And I can remember being in my home like, what just happened? Like, I am good, but wow, I didn't realize I was that good. And I grew so much through the team. I had a coach who we went to school at 5.30 before school started, and she would literally get in her car and drive behind us while we were running, honking her horn (laughs) (laughs) at us. And Funny enough, in high school, we won the first state title in cheerleading there. And my entire squad, we performed in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics when it was in Atlanta. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And the state title is actually what led us to uh, be able to try out for the Olympics. So we went through a whole tryout phase. And to be completely honest, we bombed the tryout. Like all the stunts fail and everything. But we ended up in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. And so when I went to college, I did not cheer because I'm the oldest of three. And I knew that in my head, I'm like, my parents can't afford to put all three of us through school. So I need to work. So instead, I decided to get a job. I worked full time the entire time that I was in school. And so I kind of put that on the back burner. And then it was always a dream of mine to cheer professionally. And so that's how I ended up with the Panthers. What an incredible story. There's like a thousand and one follow-up questions. And so tell me about being the Olympics. Like I've only been to the Olympics. We had them in Australia in 2000 and I thought it would be great, but the energy and just the, the connection that you feel was phenomenal. I can't imagine being actually sort of like in the event and performing. What was that like? 
It was incredible. And honestly, sitting here speaking to you, I could feel like myself being there all over again. It went by so fast, but you see all the preparation that goes into it for this incredible moment that you were literally providing the entire world in a moment. It was exhilarating. I formed a bond with the girls on that squad that year that was unbreakable because we drove from Rome to Atlanta back and forth every weekend. And for that one performance to say, gosh, like I was there, you know, I was out there, I was on the field, able to share my gift with the world, which probably looked like an ant to somebody on television. <laughs> but it was it was wonderful. And you mentioned the goal of sort of becoming a professional cheerleader. Tell me about the steps that you had to take, because I imagine a lot of the people that you're competing with to get that job have a background or like they cheered in college. Yes. So the thing about uh, cheering professionally is that it's actually all dance. Okay. So everything that we that I had been prepared for in terms of cheering in high school is totally different. I never took a ballet class. I never took a dance class. So this was literally me going in just believing in something that I wanted to do. And I actually tried out two times before. I tried out for the Atlanta Falcons and I tried out for the Panthers and I did not make it. And the hardest thing is making it to the final and you're so, so close and you're like, I'm just about there and you don't make it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you have to do is like, this is something I want to do and I'm going to show up again. And it's a mindset. I'm going to show up again until you say mm -hmm. yes. And yeah. that's what I did. And so I ended up trying out for the Panthers twice. And on the second go around, I made the team. And it was an incredible experience. I met my one of my very best friends there. And crazy enough, I knew her father before I knew her, which is just like a whole other story. But being the fact that I had never taken dance and I somehow got out there, figured it out and just kept going to pursue something that I, that I wanted. It was a goal that I had, a dream that I had, and I wouldn't trade the experience for anything in the world. And we have people listening to this who either aren't from the United States or even my family listening back in Australia. And cheer in the US or the professional cheerleading here is at a whole other level than it is anywhere else in the world. And and I've seen a few sort of like documentaries sort of on different platforms just about it and the rigors of it. And I couldn't quite believe how intense it was. Can you just talk us through what's that, like the, the pressure and the training these like? Absolutely. So I will say the majority of what you've seen on television probably is true. It, it's funny with these reality things, you're like, is that really how it is? And it really, really is. Um, when I cheered, it was, I had a full-time job and cheering was like having a second full-time job. You know, we trained every day in terms of working out we had numbers that we had to, to meet in terms of keeping ourselves in shape, routines that we had to learn. And, you know, game day, we were actually the first people that would be at the stadium. And so there's a lot of things that you have to keep up with. And you just keep reminding yourself, this is for Sunday. This is for Sunday. But it is a vigorous process. There is a lot of hard work. There's a lot of glam that's seen on the television, but there's like the work that actually goes into getting to that Sunday, you know, 3.30, 1 o'clock game. There's a lot that goes into it. And it's very competitive. You know, there's only a few spots that are there, but it's such a great opportunity, not just to represent the team, but you're literally representing your city, Yeah, you know, your city and your community, and you're a part of something forever, you know? 
And what's it like? And you, you mentioned the Olympics, so that's a massive stage. But just that sort of week in, week out, sort of performing in front of I don't know, seventy or a hundred thousand people. Oh gosh, there's nothing like it. I and honestly, my favorite part. And I'm a football fan. Like I could sit here and turn into a full on sports commentator <laughs> if you needed me to. But my favorite part was always the players' tunnel, standing in the tunnel, waiting for the players to come out, and then doing the national anthem after the players would come out. Just the feel of that. Because in my opinion, that's when the energy in the stadium, I don't care how many touchdowns are scored, the energy is the highest when you're standing at the tunnel and those players about to rush out with smoke and cheers and all of that stuff. And again, you almost forget that you're in front of 100,000 people, plus the people that are watching, you know, on the screen. And I really feel like it's centering yourself in gratitude. And I remember I started my pharma career afterwards. And I remember on my last game standing on the field and I said, I just want to remember this and just be grateful for this moment. And I remember it like it was yesterday and all of the hard work and everything was worth it um, just to stand there in that moment and really embrace what it was really all about. And who instilled that love of football in you? My parents. Okay. <laughs> my mother and my, my dad, they're both huge sports fans. And my brother, crazy enough, my brother, he played football when he was small. He's two years younger than me. And he's actually an owner operator of Chick-fil-A in Atlanta. And he played football when he was small. And then when he got to high school, my dad would not let him play because he was afraid he was going to get hurt. So my brother's junior year, my mother signed the form without telling my dad and said that my brother could play football. And my brother played his junior and senior year, and he ended up getting a full ride scholarship to Furman University. No. I'm like, listen, and so at the end of this story, mom was absolutely right to sign that for. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, well, mothers are always right, but that's, what a story. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's where we all have this passion and love for it. And, you know, we traveled, you know, to my brother's games. I am a diehard UGA fan. Like, if you've probably met anybody in Charlotte and you say, hey, who's the biggest Georgia fan in Charlotte? They will say it to me. <laughs> and was was Georgia your team growing up? Funny enough, my brother loved Georgia Tech, so I really liked Georgia Tech. Georgia was kind of my second team, mm -hmm. but that changed really quickly once I made it there. And we went to a game, I think it was last season, and I think I was on the Jumbotron probably 10 times at least <laughs> for my excitement for the game. So... <laughs> In your first year in corporate sales, you were the top sales representative in the company. Can you talk about your approach to sales? Yeah. So I would say my approach, first of all, is that it's not about me. That is how I approach everything. It's not about me and how can I serve. And Sales 101 always teaches you it's about their need. What is their need? And I think that it's also so easy to get caught up in, these are my goals. So if I hit my goals, then I'm good. But when you take the approach that it's about me being in service of someone else, I think that is always the foundation to start with anything in terms of sales. And I think that it's interesting 
with sales, you know, we often think about cars and, you know, stuff like that, retail sales. But literally everything that we do, we're constantly selling, right? Like even with my child, like I'm selling, you know, I mean, all of these different things in your relationship, you're sell- selling, we're making deals and we're trying to figure out what's going to work best for both of us in this relationship. And so that is how I've always approached it. And to look at it as this is my company irrespective of where I am and how do I take the product? And I think that if it is a product, whatever it is, you have to believe in it and you have to know that whatever it is that I am delivering, I'm going to deliver it in a way that makes my mother proud. And that is how I've really tried to approach everything that I've done because I think that even when you grow older, you're still a representative of your family. So if I'm going out with whatever product it is, whatever it is that I am doing in sales, I am in service of others. I'm going to put my best foot forward and I'm always going to be in a place where I can learn so that I can get better to provide a better service for someone else. What was the step from college and then into sales? How did you make that step? Yeah, sure. So I was working at Express and Mm -hmm. I think I worked there, gosh, for four or five years as a manager. And then once I graduated from college, I moved to Atlanta for maybe about a year or less. And I stayed in retail sales. I had this biology degree and it's like, now what? (laughs) So I moved here to Charlotte. And when I moved here, there was an opportunity for me to sell pest control. And I had had in my head, you know, pharma would be really good. Pharmaceutical sales would be fantastic. But how am I going to get in it? And it was completely different. So you think back to, I call it the Pfizer days, the blue pill days. Everybody wanted to be a pharmaceutical rep because, you know, the money was great. They were doing these trips, all of this stuff. And so I decided to get into pest control sales. That was my step into pharma. And I knew that if I can deliver in this next year, because imagine I show up and I'm like, hey, I'm your pest control salesperson. And, you know, people look at me like, wait, what? Like, is this a joke? But I did that for a year and it was specifically for corporations. So any place you can think of in the city of Charlotte, I went to and I sold them their pest control. I walked around, I did evaluations, all of the things you can possibly think of. And I also thought outside the box. So there was a lot of accounts that they had, but there was also other accounts that they didn't have. And I thought, gosh, like we should be in schools. And so that's really where I focused was the schools. And so I went to schools and I ended up landing a huge contract with the schools in Rock Hill. And that really just you know, my career took off from there. I mean, it was such a big, it was a big opportunity, a big sale. And it was also, again, it was something that they weren't really focused on, something that they weren't doing. But because of my success in selling pest control for a year, that landed me into interviewing for pharma. And typically back in those days, you only got into pharma if you knew someone. So it was really just about networking. And I applied and I prayed and they called me And I'm still friends with my boss who hired me till this day. I was the very last interview, the very last interview. And he told me afterwards, he only brought me in because he saw that I cheered for the Panthers. (laughs) He saw that I cheered for the Panthers. And that was the only reason he brought me in. He's like, I just want to see if she's smart or not. And yeah, that's that was the whole story. And at the end of the interview in pharma, you have these things that are called brag books. So Basically, it's like if you are going to sell yourself, like you better put it in that book. 
So I had only did pest control cells. So my binder was probably about half of an inch. And he comes to me at the very end of the interview. I'll never forget this. And he slams this book on the on the table. And the book is probably about four or five inches wide. And he goes, this is your competition's book. And this is what you bring me? Talking about my half an inch book. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I said, at the end of the day, it's about the content that exists in the book uh, nice. and not about the number of pages. Yeah, well said. <laughs> and he hired me. Yeah. <laughs> So that's how, and I was in pharma for a long time, and now, you know, I'm in uh, with Legacy. But that's kind of my story, but it started with pest control sales. As we talk a little bit more about sales, like, there's a stereotype type of sales professionals as being predominantly male, and data from the Gartner demonstrates that there is still a large gender gap in this part of organizations. So meanwhile, 84% of chief sales officers surveyed said that they were satisfied with the gender diversity in their organization. So it's basically male dominated, but people are happy with that. So my question is, why do you think this is the case? And what are organizations missing by lacking diversity in their sales teams? Wow. So number one, they're missing a lot. But I think that we have, and especially in America, I feel that we have certain roles, right? Like we have certain roles. We have ways that we figure this is how things should be done. It should look this way. This is how it should be. And I think for so long, those traditions have just been followed over and over again. And I think years ago, people saw women's role in the workplace in a certain way. And I think now, I mean, we have our first female vice president, you know, in the country, which is just absolutely incredible. And and these are the things that I feel like, gosh, in 2020, we're still saying like, she's the first. And I think that, again, you know, I think just with so many other things, you know, you look at race in our country, so many things that people surround themselves with what feels familiar to them. And so I think when you do that, when you surround yourself with only that which you familiarize yourself with or that you know, like you lose out on just huge opportunities. We all know women and men think completely different. You know, there's a different passion. There's a different effort. There's so many different things that make us unique. And if we aren't allowing women into those spaces, companies are missing out. You know, if you look at social media now, how social media has taken over in terms of sales. I mean, social media is one of the number one places now that we actually do sales and the customer is changing. Right. So before it was only, you know, oh, the dad's going to go buy a car or the dad's going to go buy, you know, whatever it is. And it's no longer that that way any longer. And I think that social media has given people a platform despite their age to be able to step forward and say, hey, I can still, I can be the CEO, I can do this. And I think that companies have to start taking a step back and saying, how do we create more diversity? Because the only way that it's going to happen is if the people that are in charge make a conscious effort to look at what's around them and how can they get better. But I, you know, I think that sometimes it's like, well, things are functional, things are going well, we're making money. But again, back to what I was saying, like, we're here to service people. And if I as a woman am a customer, and there's no women that's that are represented, I don't know how much you value me as a customer, because you haven't really, you know, gotten the thoughts or opinions from people who 
are like me, people who look like me, to see what is it that I really like, right? Is it just about selling a product? Is it just about moving market share or whatever it is? Or is it really about, let me look at like the diversity of my customers, men, women, young, old, and figure out how do we incorporate those people into our businesses and create more diversity. And unfortunately, uh, just in my opinion, I feel, you know, recently... All of these movements have created this narrative. But again, that's a narrative that we should just have, in my opinion, just as human beings to step back and say, like, how do I build a company? How do I build, you know, schools, whatever it is that represent the people that are coming to our place of business? And I know that's a long answer, but I, I'm very passionate about that. I exist in a, a world where there aren't tons of females. And and I would say there's definitely grown a lot more over the years. There's not a lot of African-Americans in my field as well. But I think that we have to meet at the table because people are really missing out on the uniqueness of what they can truly, truly build for sustainability and for legacy over time. I couldn't agree with you more. And that is a phenomenal answer. And I have a ton of follow-up questions. There's just a subtle messages that our our daughters get. I've got two daughters. You've got a daughter. Is my uh, eldest, when she was in second grade, she's now in fifth grade, went to the local town hall where we were in Lake Forest and our the one of the students in the class, he was a he was the mayor and he was kind enough to give them the kids a tour of the, the the little town hall and talk about it and everything. And then they said at the they they had sort of questions at the end, and he said, you know, here's the here's all the mayors that have ever been in Lake Forest in the last fifty years. And my little one put a hand up, and I was so proud of her. Said, "Are women allowed to be mayor?" And he looked and said, "Oh." you've noticed, you know, and she said, yeah. Uh, And he said, well, no, there hasn't been yet, but my hope is that in the future. And just like those subtle messages that our girls are getting, that people of color are getting, that like, if you went into Lake Forest Town Hall, you would know that, well, get a sense that only white men can be mayor, right, of this town. And we think sometimes our kids aren't picking up on those messages. Like, how do you help your daughter manage this? Like just those messages you get and just sort of overcoming those just subtle messages again that they're they're just getting constantly that like this is not a place for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things is I always talk to Emma that there are no limits. You know, we constantly talk about like, what do you love? What do you want to do? And Emma, she's very inquisitive. She asks a lot of questions and she's way more like smarter than I was at her age, I'm sure. But I think it is important to have those conversations, even, you know, when it comes to race, when it comes to being a girl. It was funny because she talks a lot about what goes on in P.E. And she was mentioning a race that they had in P.E. And she said she goes, Mama, she goes, there was one there was one boy and he was beating everybody. And she goes, Mama, I ran so fast and I beat him. And the thing was, was that she recognized that people expected a male to win. Like she knew that. And, you know, if we're not having those conversations and creating arenas and we're not creating a space to talk about that. And and more importantly, it's important for us to teach our daughters that. But it's also important for people to have those conversations with their sons, because, again, when, you know, males are growing up, that's what they see. And that's what we were saying, you know, earlier, that's what they see. And so you're just kind of going about that in, in those those gender roles. But it is important for us to have those conversations. And 
a few weeks ago, uh, the first mayor of New York City uh, passed away. And I did a post about it and Emma was standing beside me and I felt that it was like really important for her to understand that he was the first African-American mayor. And we don't talk a lot about race in terms of black and white because I really want her to understand herself as an individual first. And so when I said to her, I said, do you understand what the word African-American means? And so she stood there. And so I started asking her, well, is this friend African-American? Is this friend? And she had no clue. She honestly had no clue. And so I explained it to her, you know, what African-American means. And, you know, we touched on it a little bit. But the the beauty in it was that she could self-identify. But at the same time, it wasn't like, oh, gosh, I'm limited now. You know, and I think that I grew up in that space of the limitation for, for skin color. And I never want that for my daughter. And I think that, again, we have to keep having those conversations and be in a place of be in a place of empathy and compassion and really wanting to understand. I think a lot of times here recently people are talking, but nobody's listening. And listening is really about understanding and and like, let me see where this person is coming from, irrespective of how I thought I felt before I heard you. So when someone's coming up with, with something that in your soul you know is wrong, how do you open your heart and listen? I love this question. This is something that I have worked on for years, probably 10 to 15 years now. The key to it is recognizing ego and self. And the thing is, is that if you can first identify ego in yourself and when you're operating out of a place of ego, then you can recognize that someone else is operating out of a place of ego. The difficulty is that they're unaware, right? And so it's like, you know, someone's coming at you and the humility and you can say in your head, like, oh, this person's acting out of ego and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to listen because this is not their true self. This is the part of them that is emotional. This, you know, the, the, the part of them that has not come from a thoughtful place, but is sheer just emotions. And that is the thing that has probably helped me the most in being able to have conversations with people, you know, and I think there are some sometimes where even the person that's delivering it, they don't want to listen. They just feel like I just need you to hear me. And I think when we recognize number one ego in that person, we recognize self and then we recognize like what their intention is. Right. So I think that if someone's coming at you that way, it's like, is their intention that they want to try to have a conversation to move forward? Or is there an intention like, I'm just like, you know, in this mood. And I just want you to hear what I have to say. And I'm going to keep moving on. Because if someone's coming from that place, then you already know like the limit that's placed on it. And the best thing that you can deliver in that moment is your true self. Like I have heard you, I appreciate your feedback, but my ego is not going to match your ego. And the reason why we're at this place in our country right now, and so many other things is because we have people that are constantly operating out of ego. And so if you come at me with your ego, I'm going to match yours. And so there's a downward spiral. And so that is the thing that has worked the most for me in my life is saying this person is coming at me and this is ego. This is not who they really, really are because I recognize your humanity. And if your intention is that we can move forward and listen to one another, I am so willing to do that. If not, have a blessed day. Yeah. (laughs) 
And so in those moments, it is hard to to let go. And it does feel like sometimes that you are accepting what they're saying if you're not fighting back or if, you know, like, like arguing back or if you are just hearing it. And, you know, let's just say you're seeking to understand, you're asking a lot of questions that can feel that or even appear to others if you're sort of relaying the conversation that you were just sort of accepting what they were saying. How do you balance that as well? Is like just that, that you know, you're hearing some of these things which are sometimes just abhorrent and you are not correcting them or making the situation better can feel like. How do you manage that? You talked about ego in that moment. That is a hard, hard thing to do. It is very, very difficult because, you know, innately we want to put people in their place, <laughs> you know, and especially when you know that they're wrong. But I think the thing about it is, is again, it's it comes back to what is it that you're trying to get out of it? Am I just trying to prove the person wrong? Because proving the person wrong, if if they're not there to really listen to move the move the conversation forward, it's kind of like what's what's the point? Like what's the end game? If my end game is only to say you're wrong and I'm gonna let you know that you're wrong and we're gonna walk away from here not in a better place, then my time is like really precious. My energy is very, very precious. And so I have to be protective over my energy and my space because what happens is if I get caught up in trying to prove you wrong, and even if I know that you're wrong, my intention is still coming from a place of ego that I need to prove myself right. And one of the things that I often do, and I do this with Emma, is try to alter the state, right? So again, it's either am I trying to prove you wrong or am I trying to prove myself right? Either way, like, you know, it's not a good thing. And so I think that, again, it's it's one of these things where you offer yourself in service. Like, I'm offering myself in service because I'm willing to have a conversation with you. I'm willing to figure out how we can move forward. And I really want to listen to you. But before we move forward, I need to know like that we're on the same level. You're here to listen to me and I'm here to listen to you. And I come to you in that place of love. But the only way that we can move forward is that if we are both like, in agreement that this is how we're going to move forward. Otherwise, there are other people who would love to be on the receiving end of your energy, your ideas, and all of those things. And that's where you have to exhaust your energy, not in those places where people don't really want to get to a better place. And you have seemed to done incredible jobs busting people's false assumptions, right? So whether that be that person saying, well, you know, how can she be smart being a cheerleader? Or then that there's not women in sales, or then there's not African-American women in sales. Or like, And are you conscious that you're doing that? Or are you just like setting goals and saying, this is my vision for what my life wants to be? And, and then the, just the the sort of breaking barriers and busting stereotypes is sort of a byproduct of that? Or are you conscious of, of that that's what's happening? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely conscious. I'm conscious because mainly of how I grew up. And so the school that I grew up in, um, there was out of 1,200 students, I think there was 30 African-American students. And so you were aware, you know, that you were African-American. You were aware of a lot of other things. And so for a lot of people, I think the things that make you different, sometimes you feel limited. I've never felt limited, like ever. I can probably remember <laughs> from being a kid, like no one was going to tell me no. 
So like there is that, you know, awareness and there's that consciousness of that. But at the same time, like I am here for a purpose and I truly believe like I am very faith filled. And if I truly believe that I'm here for a purpose and that I have a specific calling, then I can't believe that the person that is in front of me has so much authority to keep me from what I am called to do. You may be a roadblock, you may be a stumbling block, and you actually may be a huge gate. However, if I'm meant to be on the other side of that gate, I am going to work tooth and nail to make sure that if I have to crawl under, bust through, or crawl over, that I will end there. And that's just literally what I believe. Like, if that's where I'm supposed to be, somehow I will be there. And you don't have that much power to keep me from being where I have been purposed to be. Wow, that is awesome. And that actually leads beautifully into my next question. And this is what led to our conversation today, is that at the end of a recent Tea with the Head of School presentation, you you were on the call and I talked about grit. Uh, and a few of the things that you said were fascinating. And uh, you talked about uh, visioning, like using vision boards. We'll get to that, that in a sec. But at the end of the call, you said something that truly resonated with me. And I thought, I need to interview Tequila for the podcast. Um, Everyone needs to hear her approach. You know, it's one of those things. um, I loved uh, this talk. I think it is fantastic. It's so like in my lane, Um, but it is about setting goals. And even with the setback, it's like, okay, there's a setback, but how do we continue to move forward? How do we teach our kids to continue to move forward, continue to still put in the effort, even though the first thing, the second thing, or the third thing may have failed, um, that we still give the same effort. We still have the same confidence in our abilities, but knowing that whatever it is that, you know, is ahead of us, the right thing is always going to connect to us. Um, And just being able to serve wherever it is that we're called to be. It was really beautiful. And like, how did you develop this approach? Like you said, you had no limits. And then this, like, you know, the, in terms of like, even if it's the first thing, the second thing, all right, you still put in the same effort. So one, how did you develop that? Cause that's, that's a rare trait. Like I've worked in education, I mean, a long time, and it's not often that you come across people who like, just have that, like, nothing's going to stop me. You know, and then so one, how did you develop and two, how do you help instill that in your daughter? Yeah, so I like I said, I've had this since I was a small child. And I think that my mother, she always poured positivity in us. And because of the environment that we grew up in, my mother always told us, you're not better than anyone and no one is better than you. Mm. And that was one of the things that I always kept in my mind. And I knew like the sky is the limit for me. Like there are no limits and calling and purpose. It's strictly about serving. And I think in our careers and the things that we do, a lot of times it's so easy to get caught up in like, I want to get to the next level. Like my goal is to get to this level, to get to here, to get to here. Not even really thinking about the setbacks. Like we have, you know, these ideas of where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. And I was watching a Christmas movie last night and the guy was like, I'm going to be partner. He just started working for this law firm. He's like, I'm going to be partner by summer. You know, like that was what his plan was. And, you know, the reality of is that 
I have just gotten to the place where wherever I am, I am there to be in service of others. And I truly do not believe that I will go to the next spot, to the next level until I have fully committed myself to serving the people that I am called to serve in that place. And so if there are 10 stumbling blocks and I don't make it to the next thing, I go back and I'm like, there's something that you're missing. There's someone that you're missing. And honestly, this is what I do on my job every day. My job has changed drastically. Um, 99% of the time I was in front of like physicians all day. Now I'm working from home trying to still navigate this. But on my job every day, I know I am going here. This is the job. This is the tool that I have been given to serve other people. And maybe it is with the therapy that I have. And maybe it's a person that I'm walking by. And I'll share this story really quickly. I was in the hospital. This is right before COVID. And I was walking by and I had walked by five people who had their cell phones and I knew all of them and not one of them saw that I was walking by. (laughs) And so I purposely said, I'm going to put my phone in my purse so that I'm not those people. So I get into the hospital and I'm walking by and there's a lady and the lady looked like she had just had the worst day of her life. And I kept walking and literally my soul was like tequila turnaround and I kept walking and it was like tequila turnaround. I, and I'm thinking, this lady is going to think you are nuts. So I turn around and I go chasing after this lady. This is a, a huge hospital in Charlotte. I start chasing after this lady. And I walk up to her and I tapped her on the shoulder. And I said, I don't know what it is. I said, but my spirit told me that I really just like needed to turn around and give you a hug. And the lady hugs me and she starts weeping like on my shoulder And I'm literally standing in the middle of a hospital with a stranger. I didn't know her name. I never met her, never saw her. Hugging her as she weeped. And I said, is there anything else that you need? And she said, no. And literally it was two strangers who went their opposite direction. And so that is how like I approach this stumbling block. Like I am still called to be here to serve. And if the first thing doesn't work out, then I'm going to go back and I'm going to figure out how do I get better? How do I serve the people better that I am called to serve? And when we do that, you don't get caught up in this. This didn't work. This didn't work. Because again, it's about mission. It's about purpose. It's about serving other people. And that whatever I have been given, whether it's degrees, whether it's accolades, the accolades aren't for me. It's that I learned something that I was able to receive education or information now that I can give to other people that benefits them that's not for my benefit at all. Leadership in the service of others is the key, I believe, to pretty much all success, right? Is As you're saying, is the ability to care for others and then help them get to where they need to be. And what was really interesting when I was a classroom teacher, like that was what I felt like I needed to do. Like, of course, you know, I taught kids Emma's age and you, you, and it was just like, how do I help them grow and be better and become better people, this and that. And then I sort of moved into leadership roles and, you know, so much of it was sort of operational. And yeah, there was obviously the people part, it was a huge part of it and caring for others. But then over time, I realized 
it is all about like loving your people, right? And serving the, the, the mission of the school and then your own personal mission as well. And so what I realized, there was so much talk in mission. I worked at a, a school previously and, and my head, and we'll probably, my plan is to do this next summer, is to have everyone learn the mission, like so off by, like, off by heart. So just, it's, it sort of becomes part of you. And I had written a mission, like a personal mission, but it was sort of long and lofty and I couldn't remember it. And so I worked at a Chinese school in San Francisco and the mission was, and this is like I left there six years ago, was embrace Chinese, become your best self, create your place in the world. And I was like, I need to create like a personal mission that is similar to that. And so and and so the summer of 2019, I had took this what you know I'd written before, like five, five or six years earlier, and distilled it down to love deeply create great schools and help people reach their dreams, right? But that is what is, that sort of drives me every day, right? And so, you know, like it's hard to love deeply because if you're going to be loved deeply, you need to be vulnerable, you need to be open and you need to be willing to get your heart broken, you know, meaning like not just from like those in your that in your family, but other people too. It's not always going to be reciprocated, sure, right? Sure, absolutely. There's people going to be let you down. And the other one is creating great schools. Like, and what I mean by great schools is ones where, you know, people, the kids grow up feeling like there's no limits. There's no there's no ceiling of what they can do. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your socioeconomic circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your race is, religion, trauma you've been through. But like if you work hard enough, if you find the right people to support you, if you get the help you need, if you believe enough, like you can do anything, right? And that's that's sort of like what I see as great schools. The other one is like helping people reach their dreams. And so that has really become my overall focus. And I'm just looking for that every time I can with like people I work with. And so if they have an interest, I'm like, how can I help them fulfill that? But the hard thing is teaching young people is they they get these messages through movies, through TV, whatever, that is like leadership is about getting what is for you, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And so whereas it's not the truth, like if you really care and love people and you admit your mistakes, and I, one of the things I love most about what you're saying is that you're saying, how can I get better? You know what I mean? Like, what do I need to do? It's like that personal thing. And so that my, I guess my, my overall question with all of this is just the, how do you instill that in the people that you work with or lead, or even in, 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 like in the different, in your family, with your daughter, that it's about service. It's about caring for others, even though the, there's messages in our society are sort of, that's sort of counter or to all of that. Yeah, I, I really think it's it's about bringing it back. I love, you know, your your personal mission. And I think that it's bringing it back to that. It's like, you know, we talk about your why. Like, what is your why? So why are you doing this? And I had a conversation with a colleague a couple of days ago. And we were just talking about being able to be creative, you know, in the business that we're doing now because it's changed so much. And that the ideas that we had in April that were great ideas, now everybody else is doing them, Right. And so he said to me, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I mean, and I just feel like I shouldn't have to do those things. And so the thing is, when we feel like we've made it, that's when we should like really check ourselves. Because the thing about it is, is that, you know, again, if you are like too big to, to do the small things, then somebody's missing out on your lack of effort. And so I think that, you know, I often have those conversations with family and with friends because, again, we get like emotional when things aren't going well. 
But it's like, is this for you? Like, what is your why in this? Is it for you? Or are you sad because, gosh, like, I'm not going to be able to do this for this person or to do that for this person. And if I can't, how do I pivot? How do I like take something that isn't great and just figure out a way just to make it better not even just for myself, but for the other person. And so I think it really is coming back to the mission. It's coming back to your faith and to truly what you believe. And I said, I do these videos and I did a video a few weeks ago. And in the video I said, because I feel like a lot of people constantly go through these ebbs and flows. And the thing that you're upset about, the thing that you're complaining about, the thing that is not working out was once like an answered prayer. Mm. It was the thing that you had prayed for and you would have given anything for them to say you're hired or, yeah, I'll go out with you or, you know, whatever it is. And so when you bring yourself back to the first day and say, gosh, I remember when like I would give anything for this. When you come back to that place, then you're you get out of, you know, this place that's me 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 me. It's like, gosh, I was so excited and I told them in that interview, I will like I'm going to work so hard for you. I'm going to like serve, you know, the people and I'm going to give my biggest effort. And then like a year later you're like, gosh, like this just really isn't working. <laughs> you know? When you get back to to that place, it changes everything. It truly does. So tell me a little bit more about the video. Yeah. So during quarantine, I just really got this feeling that God was calling me to use my voice. I had no idea how I was going to use my voice, but that's like literally what I felt in my soul. And so I started a Instagram page where the first day was a picture and I was like, oh, I'm starting this Instagram page. And so after I posted the picture, I said, okay, God, like now what? Like, what am I going to do tomorrow? And so I started posting videos and they're really just inspirational videos. And the great thing about it is that Instagram created what are called reels, which are 15 second videos. You can now do 30, 30 second videos. But it's amazing the power of words because you literally can captivate and capture and give people inspiration and encouragement in 15 seconds. And so that, um, so usually I post a couple of videos every week, um, just really encouraging people. And it's very organic. They're not planned. It literally is me going throughout my day, um, something that happens or something that pops up in my face. And somehow, I think this week, it was uh, talking about practice, practice in relationships. And I was talking about the fact that like, we're raised to that practice makes perfect. And my point was that practice makes progress. And how do you put in these efforts and change your habits to make things better? And so that's what um, I do on my Instagram page. And if anyone listening to this podcast wants to watch those videos, how could they find find you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's at uh, Tequila Shamir, S-H-A-M-E-R-E. And Tequila is T-A-K-I-L-A. Yes, not like the drink. It's <laughs> pronounced like the drink, just not spelled like it. And before we move on to our rapid fire questions, I have one other question I'd love to ask. Well, I have a thousand more, but during the head of school thing we did a little while ago and you told the story, but you talked about vision boards. Yes. And my wife and I do vision boards and they've led to just incredible things in our life. How did you learn about using vision boards and how do you use them? Yeah. So I remember a long time ago, I believe Oprah actually started talking about the vision okay. board. It was so long ago. 
And it's something that I implemented years and years ago. And then um, when Emma was born, it's something that we do at the beginning of every year. We create, you know, these vision boards. And, you know, I think the thing about it is, is that when you can see something physically in front of you and you can visualize yourself being in that space, it completely changes everything. And, you know, and I think about, you know, different people in different parts of the world or maybe um, people that don't grow up in environments that are the best environments. And so what you see is what you you believe in. Like, this is my reality. And I think with the vision board, it really is creating a reality for yourself. I have one of the things I have, my vision board is massive. One of the things I have on there, it says like, I want to be so successful that I can purchase my mother a house. Like that for me, and it's like, it has nothing to do with the money. It's just about, I want to be able to give something to her. And, you know, for Emma, it is, you know, we go through and we talk about like, gosh, like, what do we want? Like, if you could do anything, if there's a goal that you could achieve, like, what would you put on that board? And it's been the coolest thing. And I'll tell you, she has increased my faith a gazillion times over because she puts that, I put some things on there and she speaks over it. And that's one thing we pray over the board, but it's speaking life into it. Like, this is where I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to do. The, you know, these are, you know, the words and the thoughts that I want to like pour like into myself. And I think that I personally think everyone should have a vision board. And I think it's really about being intentional. You know, a lot of times like we say, gosh, like, if I could have this car or if I could have this job, this is what it will be. But when you can see it and now I can visualize myself being in that space and caring for others and working here and doing these things, I really feel like it's a shift in the mindset, you know, for teachers. It's like, what is your vision for your students next year? Like, what is it that you want to like pour in, not just for them, but what do you want for yourself? What do you want to get out of it? Because I think, you know, a lot of times things can kind of become mundane and then we're so focused on the same thing. Things, but it's an ability to really stretch ourselves and see things like from a whole new set of eyes. And I'm familiar with vision boarding, but I'm sure some people listening aren't. Practically, how do you do it? Yeah. So I basically, mine is on a huge poster board. And so I get the poster board out and whatever it is that I am visualizing or I want to create that I want to be, I go through magazines, I cut out pictures. I actually will just Google if I know, hey, like this is what it is. I will Google it, whatever the picture is, if it's, you know, a and word. Print it and cut it out. Or print yeah. it and cut it out. And then I'll just put it on the board and I keep it in a place where I see it, mm-hmm. where I'm able to look at it and able to reflect. I go through like every morning and I read every single thing that's on there and I speak life into it. And it really charges me and it really encourages me. And the thing about it is, it's like it could be three pictures. It doesn't have to be 50. It can, it can be three. And one of the things is, is like starting small, you know, like coming up with three things that you really want for yourself, cutting them out, putting them on a sheet of paper. If it is, if you have to write it on there and put it on your wall. And and one thing I've heard a lot of people do is take a picture and then put it in their phone. So you could actually go through and see it on your phone, put it as your screensaver so that you're still like in that mindset. I actually did that with us with mine. The last one I created was it was my screensaver for a number of years. Yeah. Um, and I have some cool stories about some things that came true. But one of the, the 
best ones I have is my wife. So we really struggled with infertility, right? Mm -hmm. We told we couldn't have kids. We had one, but we really want to have another child. And my wife, Chris, she made this beautiful vision board of of a lot of sort of baby images and and sort of baby paraphernalia. And on it, she, I don't know she, where, where she got it, maybe just from Walgreens, she tied a pacifier to it, mm, right? And then, yeah. you know, we we moved from San Francisco to Illinois and then it just got packed up. And then when we were packing up, moving here, we were just sort of going through all our stuff, seeing what to keep, what to move, what to give away. Um, she came upon it, right? And tied to it was this pacifier. And our first child never really used a pacifier, but our little one, she loved it, right? Mm-hmm. She loved her pacifier. She loved this particular brand and like that's all she would have and she loved it. And we had to, it was a bit of a thing to get her out of it when she was about three. It was the brand of pacifier that was tied to the vision board wow. was this one thing that she and it, that, that she just loved and she wouldn't take any others. It's just like there's something in all Absolutely. of that. It's a bit, some people are like, oh, that's all rubbish. But there's just something to it, you know, the, the, yep. in, in all of that. San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Moving on to our rapid-fire questions, the first question I have is, what is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Yes, so I read a lot of books, and if I had to give three, the first would be As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. The second would be The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, which I recommend to everyone. I don't know it. I'll look it up. Yes. And The Four Agreements, really quickly, are always do your best, be impeccable with your word, don't make assumptions and don't take things personally. And if you apply those four things to everything, which is very difficult, then your life will be a lot better. I certainly recommend that book. And the third, which is a recent book, and I have probably read it already five times, is Atomic Habits by James Clear. That book Everybody should read. It is a life changer. Everyone should read it. I read it, became obsessed with it, and then I signed up for their online course. They have an online course in Atomic Habits, which is basically him just sitting talking, but it is so powerful. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I love that book. And what are some things you love doing in your free time? I love, we serve a lot at church. So I am one of the um, outreach coordinators at our church in Charlotte. And so Emma and I, during the summer when we were able to, we would go to different organizations and serve. Uh, We'd go to organizations and hand out pizza and waters and you name it, we have done it. We do, we're still doing some things um, on our campus right now, but that is a big part of what we do is volunteering and serving in our community. I love just like hanging out with Emma. She's like the coolest little kid. She's really into video production right now, making trailers. So love that. And I just love going to sit and have a cup of coffee with my family and just, you know, hang out. Those are some of the best moments. And if you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I would actually say I would learn the skill of being a nurse. And the reason I say that is because what we have seen recently in our country and the love and the care um, that's been given through our healthcare system, 
gosh, it's like if we all had that like extra skill, how we could all be able to like step up and like help out. So I think it would be that skill, even if it's not, you know, at an ICU level, but just being able to, if I needed to step in and help and be of service in that way that I could. Beautiful. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I would say- Talking about habits, yeah. Being obedient. Being obedient and- just moving forward. And I I truly feel if you're called to do something, you already have the skills to do it. We just have to step forward into it. And sometimes it's like, gosh, I didn't think that's what I was supposed to do. And that book, actually, Atomic Habits, has helped so much. The one thing that he says is just about like working out. If you if you do it for five minutes, you can still say you're somebody that works out, right? And so it's that thing of saying like, I'm going to be obedient to what I'm called to do, irrespective if, you know, I have all of the skills, I'm still going to just say yes and go for it. And what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career in sales? I would say, number one, be prepared to be in service of others. I would say networking. And I would also say, be willing to prepare and create a space for somebody else. And the final question is, what inspires you? Oh, life. Life inspires me. People inspire me. And being able to connect with people just on a different level gets me up in the morning. And it inspires me to be my very, very best. I am blessed. I am so blessed. And to be able to give somebody what has been given to me inspires me in a way that is difficult to like really, really put into words. And when I see other people and I'm surrounded by other people who still have that fire to just give and love, there's nothing better than that. Well, Tequila, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've You've offered so much wisdom and advice, and this has just been an absolute thrill, and I'm sure that other people listening will feel exactly the same. You are incredibly inspiring in the way that you sort of see the world, and this has been an absolute pleasure, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.